churches from ministers and different things like that. And I, I read this story, and it's a, it is a very true story. There's a church down in the south, and the church, the elders and the minister have been stressing the importance of sharing the gospel, of telling other people about Jesus. And in this church was a slower guy, is what they just said. He's, he's one of our slower ones. who He was just mentally challenged. Well, he listened to that message, and he wanted to do it. He wanted to partake, but he didn't really know how. A couple Sundays later, he's sitting there in church, and a new guy shows up who happens to be a skeptic and just wanted to come and see what this church stuff was all about. This young man looked at him and said, well, do you want to become a Christian? And he says, I have no intention of being a Christian. That's what the skeptic said to this young man. He was quiet for a little bit, and then he says, well, then you can go to hell. And he turned and walked away. The boldness of this boy's sincerity, because he didn't yell it, he didn't accuse him, it actually shook him, causing this man to want to come back, and then want to come back. And eventually he turned his life over to Jesus. But it was the phrase... You can go to hell. Now, we don't say that. When we hear that, it's really not a nice thing, right? You never hear it so pleasantly. Do you think that young man was being offensive? Do you think he was really trying to insult the skeptic? I don't. I think what that young man was telling the skeptic was honest, clear truth. If you don't want Jesus, then you can go to hell. Those are your choices. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought. Just hold on to that for a moment. I want to review the background of where we are. We're going through this whole study and series, crawling through the book of Acts. And in Acts 3, what we just saw, Peter and John went to the temple to pray. On the way, they met this crippled guy, and they healed him. The man is so excited. He's jumping and leaping, and there's already a crowd. And then he's jumping and praising God, and more and more people start coming. And Peter, it says, takes the opportunity because of the crowd to preach the message. He tells them, why are you looking at us? It is because of Jesus. This Jesus, the Messiah, the one you've waited for, the one you killed, he's the reason this man is walking. God knew that those people, as well as their leaders, had acted in ignorance, we saw. Um, the death and resurrection of Jesus had been prophesied for thousands of years before Jesus, and then it was fulfilled. And then Peter says this in Acts 3, uh, starting in verse 19. Now repent of your sins. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then, notice the condition of timing. After you do that, then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And he will send you Jesus. Um, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. Is Peter being offensive? He's being judgmental. Turn from your sins. That's a judgment saying you have sinned. Was he insulting the crowd? Is he being harsh or rude? 
No, no more than that boy was, that young man was in that southern church. Peter is simply telling them, here's the truth and you need to hear it. You crucified Jesus, the Messiah. You did it in ignorance, but you did do it. And now if you continue to reject them, if you or reject Jesus, you will go to hell. So therefore, repent. Don't reject Jesus anymore. And if they embrace Christ, God will forgive their sins and refreshment and peace would fill their lives. That was chapter 3. Recap of chapter 3. Now we're going to start out in chapter 4, starting verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. Now, can you imagine? Peter's sermon was not well received. You have sinned. You killed the Messiah. You crucified him. You're guilty, and people didn't like it. It's kind of odd, isn't it? And it really hits the Sadducees. Now, I'm pretty sure that was not the plan that Peter and John, they didn't wake up that morning and say, you know, on our way to the temple, let's find a cripple. Let's heal him so we can go to jail. That wasn't the plan. The next day, starting at verse 5, the next day the council of the rulers and elders and teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem. And as the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, uh, John, Alexander, and the other relatives of the high priest, they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power and whose name have you done this? Now there is a lot we just read through, and before we move on, we need to define a few things. Many times in sermons or in Sunday school classes or in church events, people use words, biblical words, but yet we never explain them or tell them what, tell what they are. You hear somebody preaching about it, and instead of asking questions, we just move on because honestly, we, we don't want to ask a question and let people know, I don't know what that means, so I'll, I'll just pretend. So when you hear the word law, Whenever you hear the word law, it's all the commandments that are recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's generally what that means. The law means the commandments of the Old Testament, particularly the first five books. Moses wrote the first five books, and those are called the Pentateuch. There's a new church, another church word. Pentateuch means first five books. That's really what it means. That's the Greek version of it. The Hebrew version would be called the, anyone know? Torah. First five books of the Jewish Bible. Uh, Torah really means divine revelation. And it has come to include all of the Old Testament. So when people talk about that, that's what they're thinking. So it's the law, the Pentateuch, or the Torah. Really, the Old Testament. Okay, that's kind of a synopsis of that. Another word that gets used in Scripture, and it's even talked about in today's uh, text, the Sanhedrin. How many of you have been to the Sanhedrin? Good, nobody. That's good. This word is found in Scripture, but many people don't know what it is. While the title Sanhedrin is not used in these verses, it is implied. The Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the Jews. It's not the police. It's the religious ruling body. They're the ones who dictate who does get in trouble 
Um, there's all these different groups of the priests in there. The Sanhedrin is made up of three groups, Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. Okay, so there's the three groups, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. Pharisees claimed Mosaic authority for their interpretation of Jewish laws. Pharisees like to look at the scripture and then say, but I think it means this. And so we're going to make rules and laws to fit what I think this means. Okay, Pharisees did a lot of that. They believed in the resurrection. They followed a lot of the legal traditions of the law and then added and added and added more to them. The key is it's how they interpreted them. You ever heard people can interpret scripture the way they want to, right? Well, it goes all the way back to Pharisees. They did that. Uh, Scribes, they had the knowledge of the law and could draft legal documents. Okay, a notary republic of, or a notary of the Jewish scribes, or of the Sanhedrin. That's what the scribes kind of are like. They did contracts for marriage, divorce, loans, inheritance, all that stuff. And then there's the Sadducees. These are the ruling class. Do not think of the Sanhedrin as checks and balances of the House or Senate, okay? That's totally different. The Sadducees were the ruling priests, and they rejected doctrines not specifically stated in the law. If it's not written, it doesn't exist. Okay, such as, you're not going to find resurrection in the Torah or future life, the existence of angels, you're not going to really find that in the first five books. Now, who arrests Peter and John? A lot of you are like, man, I didn't go to college. Why are we talking about this? Okay, so who arrests Peter and John? The Sadducees. The Sadducees, along with some of the scribes and priests, but the Sadducees control the Sanhedrin. They're the upper class, the high. And why are they upset? Why are they angered? Look what it says in verse 2. The leaders were disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there was a resurrection of the dead. Sadducees don't like that. Problem is they don't believe this. They don't believe. Sadducees don't believe that God has the power to resurrect people from the dead. That's really what it comes to. They, he just doesn't do that. He can't do that. They were the liberals of their day. They, they uh, didn't believe in a real physical resurrection of the dead. They got pretty ticked off by people who did believe it. So here's a way to do it, okay? I learned this I learned this a long time ago. Or, I'm sorry. I came up with this a long time ago. How's that? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they were sad, you see. Come on. You're going to remember that forever. The Pharisees had lots of laws. They weren't very fair, you see. Come on. It's brilliant. Okay, anyway, anyway, this really humped them off. Okay, this really ticked them off. They were mad. I just made my son laugh by saying honked. Okay, this is why they char- uh, challenged Peter and John, who is giving you the authority to preach like this? They despised the very idea of anyone believing that somebody from the dead could rise up. So Peter and John had been arrested for teaching this doctrine of resurrection. Peter saw the opportunity in chapter 3 to preach. What do you think he's going to do when he's brought before the Sanhedrin? Seeing a crowd, 
He takes the opportunity. And just like the young man who talked to that skeptic, Peter's going to give them a very similar message. So go to verse 8. Then Peter, notice this next phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. We know this isn't just Peter. We know God is directing this. Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people. Very respectful in how he's communicating to them. Are we being questioned today because of we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Now, if this is all Peter had done, if this is all that he had said, they would have let him go, I think. But Peter was not very shy. He was one of those extroverts. When he saw something, he went and did it. He has no intentions of stopping. He needs to tell these people more. Go to verse 10. Let me clearly state to all of you, and the Greek here is very emphatic, let me over-enunciate, let me simplify this for you educated people. He started off, oh, you religious leaders, let me dumb it down for you. Okay, that's what he's saying here. And to all the people in Israel that this man was killed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Not just Jesus, because that's a popular name, but specifically Jesus, the Christ, from Nazarene. The man you crucified, but God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter tells the Sanhedrin exactly what he told the temple, the people in the temple. You crucified the Messiah. You are guilty of sin. You rejected the one sent by God. You need to understand the only way that you can truly be saved is to appeal to the one you killed. Now, these were not Peter's final words. These, or these were not Peter's words. Remember what it said? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. These are the words inspired by God himself. And it's the same message that Peter repeats over and over and over again. All throughout the book of Acts, it's the exact same message. We've heard this is going to be the third sermon of Peter, and you can sum it up as in, you sinned, you killed the Messiah, the one you should have known about. You need to repent. You need to turn to God for forgiveness and salvation. He's saying the same thing. Why, why do we have to repeat? How many times have you had to repeat the same message to your children? Why? I just saw a bunch of moms looking at their kids. Why do we have to repeat them? Because they are a lot like the father. Why do you need to repeat it? Because we're not that bright. We forget. We change our focus and we need to be repeatedly told so that we can get it. So that we can truly understand it. Peter is repeating this because it is important. He said it at Pentecost when 3,000 repented and were baptized in into Christ. He said it at the temple when he healed the lame man. And now he says the, exactly the same thing in the Sanhedrin. Do you think this message is important then? We're in chapter 4 and we've heard the same message in three different sermons. 
Now, I do not believe Peter is being harsh or rude. He is not trying to insult them. He is telling them the truth. Listen to me. It might be blunt. It is definitely bold. Peter is saying, you crucified Jesus. You're guilty. You need to repent. It's the same message you and I need to hear. Too many times we come in and we're like, well, I'm good. I, I feel good. No, you, you sinned again. You are guilty of what Jesus did, what he took from you. He took your death. You deserved it. We forget that too many times. Too many times I, I was raised in the church, and you know what? I'm a good guy. I've gone to church most of my life. I know a lot of the Bible. Donnie, you're guilty. You have sinned. This Messiah you knew about chose to sin. So I need to repent. Our sins, your sins, my sins, put Jesus on that cross. We are guilty and we need to be repentant. We need to be buried in the waters of baptism and rise up into his new life because we need to hear that message because that's what we needed to bring salvation into our life. Don't you think it's what the rest of the world still needs to hear? Very blunt, but very simple. Telling someone they are wrong is considered judgmental or offensive. Yet while the Sanhedrin doesn't like what Peter and John have just told them, look what it says in verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could not, they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. Real quick, we're, this is not going to be in there, but I want you to see this real quick. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the what? The boldness from these uneducated people. Look at the boldness. There's only boldness in somebody who knows what they believe and is convicted that it is true. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. I wonder if that's something lacking in our church, the boldness in being recognized as people who are with Jesus. Sorry, that's a little side sermon that we're going to get into later on. Peter and John were bold. They were not intimidated by the Sanhedrin. They had one message that they kept repeating. Peter and John repeated the message, you sinned. You're guilty, you need to repent, and you need to turn to Jesus. That, that's really what it is. There's a poem by a famous poet that I've never heard of. His name is Edward Guest. Many people have heard the first line. Here's the poem. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Um, I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusing, but an example is always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see a good put into action is what everyone needs. Now that whole poem there, do you like that? Does that make sense? Do you kind of agree with that? I, I kind of do. It's basically saying if you don't walk the walk, no one's going to listen to you when you try to talk the talk. 
That's really what he's saying there. But too many people quit on that first line. Look at that first line. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. Well, who wouldn't? Right? You know, just so you know, there's a clock over here. It's broken. So if you're trying to see how long I'm preaching, look at that clock only. Sermons kind of tend to go on and on and on. He just keeps repeating himself. All he ever does is stand up there and talk about what? Jesus and money. It's all sermons are ever about. That's what I've heard. That's what people have said to me. That's what we think. But what does Jesus say? What does Scripture actually say? The idea that I can get by by just doing my faith and not talking about it is false. It's a lie. That is not godly. That's satanic. Trying to get by with just keeping my faith to myself is the cheap way out. And that's not how Jesus intended his church. And I don't mean the building. I mean every single believer. That's not how Jesus intended his church to exist or to be built. An atheist once came up to William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He said, if I believe what you Christians say you believe about the coming judgment, the impeding rejectors of Christ will be lost. If I believed everything you're saying, I would crawl on my bare knees on crushed glass all over London, warning men night and day to flee for the day of wrath that is coming. This atheist said, if I believed what you say you believe, I wouldn't stop talking about it. And people are asking Christians today, do you believe what you say you believe? That's really what Christians need to answer. Does an unbelieving world around you, can they see that you truly believe what you say you believe? There's a man who once told the preacher, I don't wear my religion on my sleeve. My religion is personal, and I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to offend people. I don't want to shove it down people's throats. And We get told that a lot. I know I do. Well, you're just trying to shove it down my throat. And so the preacher's startled by the audacity. I don't wear it on my sleeve. I, I keep it personal because it's, it's my intimate relationship. So he, the preacher said, you're a Christian, aren't you? Yes. I'm not one of those religious fanatics. So he asked him these questions. Did it ever occur to you that it cost Jesus Christ his life so you could call yourself a Christian? It cost him his personal, physical life so you could call yourself a Christian. Before he answered, it cost the disciples their lives to get the message of Christ to you. Before he answered that, Millions of Christians throughout the centuries have suffered and died as martyrs in order to get the message of God's love and forgiveness to you. Do you really believe that your faith in Christ is personal and private and you shouldn't talk about it when so many people have died to try and get it to you? Wow. Do you realize, here's a question I think we need to answer. Do you realize how much blood has been shed so you could be saved? I'm not just talking on the cross talking countless generations of people who have fought, have bled, and died just to advance the message that there is a hell. But you don't have to go there. Jesus planned to build his church 
through faithful Christians who are willing to talk about their faith. Look what it says in Romans 10, 14. But how can they call on him, this is talking about Jesus, to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? According to this verse, how are believers going to, how are unbelievers going to be able to call on Jesus to save them? By Christians telling them. It's very simple. Why have we bought into the lie that, well, I don't need to tell them. That's not my job. That's the loudmouth on the stage. That's his job. I, I am a loudmouth. I know that. But you, go, you all have a louder voice than I do when you speak the same message. That means you and I need to be taking opportunities to tell others about Jesus. That's what scriptures tell each of us to do. And God gets excited. God gets excited when his people do what he's commanded them to do. What is it we need to share? We're sinners. You need to share, I, I'm a sinner. Not Donnie's a sinner, that you are personally a sinner. You can say I'm a sinner too, that's fine. That we are sinners, that we decided to turn it back over to Jesus, to repent. Repent means to turn away from and go in a new direction. Repent, turn away from the sinful and go to Jesus. Repent, be baptized into Christ, and that we are saved by grace. We try to live a good life not to earn salvation, but because he has guaranteed that salvation. Our good deeds don't buy God's grace. We do them as an act of kindness and love to him. And now, with that basic message that I am a sinner, I have messed up. And I found the right way. I tried to reject that false, that sin, and I turned to God. You know what that does? That puts me on even or lower ground than the person I'm talking to. I don't come at them as, you need to be like me. Be holy like I am. Why, why is the world thinking that Christians are holier than they? Because I don't need to tell them. I'm too good for that. We just keep backing up from our responsibility. And we open up a chasm for them to just go to hell while we watch. And it's time we step up. I'm a sinner. I have messed up my life. But I found Jesus. And this is how I turned away. And he helped me and he saved me. And I'd like to just share that with you. If you want, I'll share that with you. Now, let me be perfectly clear on this. Just because Jesus wants you to share his, your faith in him, it, it is commanded, it is expected from him, that doesn't mean people are going to be all excited about what you're talking about. Look what it says, verse 15. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chambers and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. So we can't cover it up. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda. That's a very bold charge word. To spread their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. 
So they called the apostles back in, commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. In other words, they said, shut up about Jesus. And I just said that word. But they were very strict. They ordered, they commanded them, quit talking about Jesus. We don't want to hear another peep about him. Don't ever mention his name. Just because you see the truth, just because you know the way to salvation, doesn't mean they're going to listen. And here's what we need to answer. Peter and John answered it. We're going to see their answer. But you and I need to answer. We need to decide, are we willing to follow God's command and endure earthly rejection? People walked away from Jesus. They didn't accept his message. Why do we think... They have to accept the same message from us. I'm never going to be as good of a speaker, preacher as Jesus. Had people walk away. They're not walking away from me. They're walking away from him. I'm just the messenger. Peter and John have an answer for this command. Look what it says, verse 19. Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have heard and seen. I've had people say they're uncomfortable when they are hanging around me. They complain because pretty much what all I talk about is my, my kids, my wife, and Jesus, my church, and that stuff. And fish tanks. Forgot about fish tanks. I didn't write that in. Thanks, Austin, or Brady. We're the same kid, it don't matter. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, forget this kid over here. People have complained that all I do is talk about my family and my Jesus. And my answer is, duh. What do I love most in the world? Obviously, Austin. <laughs> I'm sorry, Brady. <laughs> that just popped. No. <laughs> I am a husband, I am a father. I am a preacher, but more than that, I am a saved Christian. So why would I not talk about that? My parents got all up in Amway for a while. How many of you remember Amway? Yeah, see, there's a generational gap there. Do you know why? They died. But when you were in Amway, you didn't stop talking about it. You were telling everybody about these products and all this stuff going on. They had some really great products. It's all I ever knew. I didn't know they sold detergent at stores because we got Amway stuff. Do you know they had to go to classes and seminars on how to speak properly about Amway? Do you know why? They didn't love it. And yet, I never went to a class to talk about how wonderful my wife is or how awesome my kids are. I never had to go to class on to say how much I love Jesus. Because I love it. I automatically say it. That's why I talk about these things. For the Christian, that should be the driving force when we love Jesus, when we realize what should happen to us, what we truly eternally deserve without him, what my life on earth should be without him, let alone my eternity. How can you get me to stop talking about that? You want to know why I preach so long? 
Here's the real answer. I love preaching. I like it. Next week, I'm not preaching. We're going to hear Matt Love, and he's going to give a great message and talk about the camp. And so the whole week after, in the office, I'm going to be preaching sermons because I missed it. So pray for Dustin and KC and, and Ariel and Jackie. I can't help it. I want to tell people. How many of you have been on Facebook? Have you ever noticed how many people share stories about cute little doggies and those other feline creatures? Yeah, cats. How cute they are. And they share all this stuff in little videos. How about people who share all these political posts? And what's your thoughts on that? Now, I happen to like those little cute doggies. I look at the feline ones. I read a ton about those political stuff. I have some very strong political opinions. But I rarely share those on Facebook. I, I rarely do. Do you know what I do share? Because I, I, one of the reasons why I don't put all that political stuff on there is I don't want to put Jesus in the shadows. I don't want to elevate American politics over my Jesus. I don't want people to hear, well, Donnie's all about this, 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 and this, and this, and the American system. Let me tell you something. America is one day going to fall just like the rest of this world, but heaven will not. And that's what I want to make sure everybody knows. I like being American. I like this land. But this is not my home. Heaven is. And I'm going to talk more about home than this time here. I want Jesus to be forefront. I want people to know what the real love, the real passions of my life are. 1 Corinthians 2.2 For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I will forget everything else. That means even good things. But here's the deal. The driving force in talking about Jesus must be how much we care whether or not people we talk to, witness to, go to hell or not. You and I should be so driven with concerns that our friends, our relatives, our work, our co-workers, neighbors, they're going to hell. I really think about it. Put some names in your head. People in your life. Families. Co-workers. Neighbors. That do not have a relationship with Jesus. And you choose not to tell them. You are telling them. I, I don't care if you go to hell. That's what you're saying. Now, let me ask you this, okay? You're in your home and there's this, uh, you're having a family get together. And a fire erupts and there's six other family members in the house. How many would you have to get out of the house before you're satisfied? All. You wouldn't say, well, I got the majority. Ah, I got my favorite ones. You would fight to get all six. In fact, wouldn't the firemen, when they arrive, have to hold you back just so that you didn't go in there to get the remaining ones? 
Wouldn't you do everything in your power to save them? And yet the real fires of hell are reaching up into our friends and families and we sit there. God has commanded, God has commanded that we be the ones that tell them. If you don't believe me, look what it says in Jude. Very small book, the 23rd verse. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their lives. Snatch them from the fires. Let me tell you something. Do you know how close you have to be to snatch somebody from the fires? You have to be willing to get burned. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. You have to be willing to get in harm's way. To save them. You have to be willing to say something. When the church starts living with this kind of destination, that we are going to tell any and everybody there is a way to salvation. There is a way to get free from all this junk in this world. Let me tell you about it because of what he's done in my life. Do you know what happens? Same thing happened to Peter and John. Verse 21, the council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. I'd love to see that happen. The government doesn't know what to do because if they punish St. Joe more, it's going to start a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of the man who had been lame for 40 years. When the church lives on destination, God gets the credit. When the church lives towards destination, we're going to face troubles. We are. When the church lives towards that destination, God brings a victory. And to live that destination, we have to do something. We have to point out that there's only two destinations. There is heaven. And there is hell. That's it. There is no other option. And you need to know there is a time coming when governments, authorities, it's happening in other countries, but they're going to say, no more will you speak in the name of Jesus. It is coming. They're already saying that they're trying to stop it in different parts of this country. And you and I need to decide, do we want to obey them rather than God? They can imprison me, they can beat me, they can hurt me, but they can't save me. Jesus already did that. So I want everybody to know, I love God. And I want to take as many people as I possibly can to that eternal paradise of perfectness. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. It's their choice. How do they know it if I don't tell them? We've lived for 20 years with people saying, I don't need to preach it, they'll just learn. And the church has declined in that thinking. Let's get back to Scripture and start teaching and preaching. Which is what it says. So are you ready to do that? We will not win everybody. But we will have the victory. And then we will see more 
and more people come to salvation, which is the purpose. Will you choose to do it? Obey God rather than comfort. Obey God rather than man. Obey God rather than hell. Let's be the church. Let's live on destination. Let's gather together again. Let's worship. Let's go back in the throne room and praise Him for Him saving us and the eternal salvation we have received. And if you want to talk with one of us, pray with us, I can meet you in the back. But remember, we are here as the church. We are to live it as the church. Let's stand and worship our God. Thank <laughs> you.